Well, thanks for joining us for the last podcast of the season. Uh, this season, we've covered 12 different uh, entrepreneurial journeys. Uh, there's been lots of stories of people kind of building businesses in very different ways. Hopefully, you can see yourself in some of those. Um, but one of the things I guess we were really interested in doing was kind of recapping um, some of the lessons learned uh, over those uh, last 12 episodes. And so in this episode, we're really doing kind of a recap of some of the highlights and some of the kind of key takeaways. So we're kind of doing a top 10 um, from the whole season. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I really appreciate your support and excited about looking at next season. Hey, Mike Vetter, you're back again. I'm back, and we've had a few episodes since we talked last. This is fun. It is. Well, we're just about to wrap up season one. You and I started the first episode of this, so it only seemed right that you and I finished the last one. So welcome back. I love it. Well, thank you for having me back. I'm excited to talk about some of these learning from that we had from the year. It was a it was a fun it was a fun season to join together. Yeah, I agree. And so this whole episode is just about the top ten takeaways that we had from our season one. So uh, I think there were, we had a lot of great guests, and there's a lot of uh, interesting takeaways from that. And so we kind of organized it um, from you know kind of the entrepreneurial journey all the way through. So why don't we start and kick it off? Uh, the first one I had was um, from Bill Trillium. Uh, from Verbal AI, and it was about finding the right co-founder and how important that is. Um, and he just described a like massively uh, like inspiring story about moving from South Dakota all the way out to Silicon Valley and not knowing anybody and not having an idea, but like going to this coffee shop and then standing in line and talking to people and then meeting other people. Um, and you know, basically, then he started volunteering at different organizations to meet people. And his criteria, he had a pretty good idea of what his criteria in his head was. And it was just interesting how he didn't make quick, rash decisions about this individual that he wanted to partner with. He wanted to find somebody that was tested, had conflict, um, and, and was just you know structurally aligned with him. And what was ironic was uh, he met all these different people. And then by the end of it, he ended up going back to that same coffee house and he was having a conversation. And it was the person that was next to him that said, hey, that, that seems pretty interesting. Can I join your conversation? And that was it. And, and to me, he said he talked to over 200 different founders before he found his partner. To me, that is just incredible. Um, it's, it, you know, you think about it and you put it into terms of dating. I don't know if any of us have gone through and had 200 dates to find our spouses. <laughs> I know I didn't. I couldn't get that many dates. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. To me, that was like a pretty incredible story about, you know, all of his experience in Blue Bottle Coffee Shop and and just being super focused on what he was looking for. He had a very clear idea of what characteristic he needed. Yeah, and that, that really resonated with me. And also just the amount of time he spent doing it. Uh, it actually reminded me of a story I have from very early on in my entrepreneurial journey. Uh, I was uh, living in Madison, my hometown, and was starting my first startup. And we were doing a backup product. And I needed some help. I was a solopreneur at the time. I needed some help building that. And my dad worked with uh, a guy who had a son who allegedly was a developer, but the only way to find him was to go down and in, into his basement where his son lived and to just sit down and talk with him about it. And it, it was the same thing. I had talked to all kinds of people. I went to Dakota State. There was all kinds of developers there. I met with lots of them. And, and I just didn't feel that spark of a shared uh, vision for what things should be. And our, our shared vision was a little bit different uh, than Bill's, but it was around open source software and just making software available so that people could collaborate on it. And Michael shared that vision. And it, it was it was much the same. We had coffee, we sat, and we and it was just one of those things where it just clicked. And uh, I, I think that for a lot of entrepreneurs, 
it's, it's as much about that piece, about clicking and seeing the world the same way as it is about skills or your resume or anything like that. And I just, I heard that from Bill as well. I thought it was really good. Yeah. And I would say, um, certainly as my career has gone on, maybe the criticality of the people you work with has gone up. Um, I just, I think a, you get better at it. Um, and kind of, and then, I mean, I think I have a certain style. There's no question about it. I I look for kind of blue collar, pretty straightforward people, uh, that are pretty self-aware. Um, and like, and then basically you just try to look for those people. And I think Mike, that's part of the reason why we're doing what we're doing. I think we have good kind of alignment. We deal with conflict relatively well. We communicate, we're pretty straightforward. Uh, we're not playing any games. Um, and I think that's, you know, not only do we have a shared vision, but I think, you know, as we've gone through crunchy discussions and disagreements, we've figured out how to do this pretty frictionlessly. And I think that's been a model in my career of saying, I don't have a ton of those, but the people that I do have, they're super important that, that they meet that criteria for me. Yeah, I, I feel the same. Uh, we, we've been through enough permutations of things that we've worked on together that there have been some crunchy times. There's been some times where we didn't understand things in exactly the same way, but getting through those conversations and being able to come to something that works for both of us is something we've done, you know, throughout the years. And so um, I think we're going to get into that a little bit later. So I won't, I won't jump the gun on that. So uh, Todd, what's your next one? Uh, the next one I have uh, is by Ray Hesben and Property Meld, and it's the power of a good origin story. Um, I think regardless of where you are in the continuum of entrepreneur, whether you're a product person, you're a salesperson, you're a technical person, your ability to tell a good origin story, I think is massively critical. Um, Some people think of that as sales. And I think that is just being able to build connection. Um, And one of the things that I thought was great about Ray's story was he's a mining engineer, a mining engineer. So super like analytical. Uh, And he had lived in a whole bunch of places around the United States. He had moved for work quite a bit. And his co-founder and him were both having this experience where like being in an apartment and then having problems, you know, while you're in your apartment, like, you know, uh, the thermostat's not working. My garbage wheel's backed up. I got a broken window. Trying to get that stuff resolved was a crappy experience. And I think the cool thing about this was who has not lived in an apartment can't relate to that story. And so them basically saying, you know, that's the problem I was trying to solve. And you can see yourself in that situation. Then the abstraction of them building software to fix that problem is like, that totally makes sense. Like I get it. Um, And to me, that was like a great example of being able to communicate something um, that was just relatively straightforward, but it had an emotional tug to it. And then most people could relate to it. Yeah, and, and Todd, you were in, you got involved in that business early, and you saw that story evolve pretty significantly as the company grew. Um, that must have been a really interesting experience to watch Ray grow as that as as this evolved from really just a nuts and bolts side to really changing that industry. Yeah, and I think you know this goes to credit Ray. I think he's changed or evolved as a storyteller uh, through that period of time, right? I think we all kind of do this. I think early in our career, we have a natural tendency and a natural storytelling uh, mode. But like as we talk about, like knowing your audience is pretty important. And so whether that's investors or you're doing something internal or you're telling your grandmother, like all of those are kind of different ways to tell that 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 uh, origin story. And so. I would say that like the great founders basically scale their origin story or their communication along with that. Yep. I agree with that. And that, that really happened. That really happened to me. Uh, when I is actually back when we first met where I have a technical background and was really focused on solving what I thought were technical problems. And what I learned early on, and, and we worked through this, this was some of our early crunchy conversations is Shifting that conversation from being about solving a technical problem to making a, a, an impact on someone's life 
and also making that story a, a thread that weaves its way in from the technical and the the problem that you're solving, but also to the emotional side of of taking somebody from the place they were at into a better place. And you're yes, we're using technology, we're using software to do that. But when you're making a difference in, in somebody's life, that's a story that people connect with. And shifting that is something we, you push me really hard on to say, you know, basically we, we need to shift this from just a story about metrics and data and moving things around to making a difference in somebody's life. And that was a big deal for me. And I know that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs, they have to cross that chasm. And it's a really hard chasm to cross. Yeah, and maybe I'd say it a little bit differently. I think sometimes we talk about the feature functionality and we don't talk about the outcome, right? That's what the person cares about is the outcome. They don't care about like how it's going to happen. It's basically like what is uh, it's like here's the problem and here's the solution and you're going to and your product's going to bridge the gap to that. And I think telling that story is is super important. And maybe I bring it back to like our origin story or my component of Wildfire you know, both my wife and I went to school of mines. And then basically when we graduated, there wasn't a lot of technology jobs. And so coming back and saying, how do we build a program around wildfire labs that creates opportunities for not only the people at school of mines, but even my kids, right? So if they want to stay in the hills or if they want to stay in South Dakota, there are options for them. Um, and so again, a lot of people hear that story resonates with them because they see their kids wandering away or they uh, left the hills and came back or they know people. And so again, it's trying to relate to them a problem and then understanding what solution we can provide. They don't need to understand all of the minutia of how wildfire works, but understanding what we're trying to do and what problem we're trying to solve, I think really cements um, the value of what we're trying to do. Yep, I agree with that. All right, but... Doing that isn't easy. And uh, you and I have not had easy, straight pathways to get to where we wanted to go. So I think your next, uh, your next item is, is a really good one on that vein. So talk, talk to me a little bit about grit. Yeah, so grit is number three is a takeaway. Um, and I think this is a skill that you'd see this across every single entrepreneur that we talk to. So I'm going to highlight uh, Deb Clark from eval.com. Uh, her uh, origin story just screams grit. Um, you know, I think uh, she kind of had a non-traditional entry point into technology. Um, she uh, basically didn't finish high school. Um, she had uh, her mother passed away relatively early in her life. Her father didn't deal with it well and left. Um, and so and then basically she basically didn't deal with it well either when her family kind of fell apart. And so the next thing you know, she's like living on the street and trying to like just survive. Um, and really going, I don't know if anybody really worries if, if something happens to me. Um, that's a that's a low point in your life, especially as a teenager. Um, and then just to, the ability to, you know, get up, dust off your pant legs and start putting the pieces together. Um, so I think she was 27 when she got her GED. She started working at a bar as a bartender at a strip club, which as a female cannot be a great place to be. Um, and then, you know, started to you know, work for an appraiser that kind of took her under her wing and learning the business and just soaking it up, right? Like just saying, there's a better way. I know what the other side looks like. And so I'm only going to get better. Um, and so, you know, like then she basically starts her own business and, you know, and that to me, that's, that's just amazing. And I guess after I heard that story, you just think about what she's doing in business and you think, man, I think she's going to beat it. She's going to win, right? Because she has so much tenacity and so much grit that she knows where she's been and like this stuff is just work and it's just easier to get done. The, the other thing I really appreciate about her is from that difficult place, she learned that she just had to do it. She had to work hard. She had to figure it out. So she's taking this industry 
that is just full of people who are, I think, are slacking. And, and she's saying, there's a better way to do this. We should be able to help uh, these property owners uh, get, a, you know, get an eval in a, in a fast way, in an affordable way. And she is willing to slog through miles of red tape from dozens of states to fix this problem that is plaguing everybody and is really affecting, uh, you know, the whole industry. And she's just relentless. You know, the, the pandemic hits, you know, people stop buying because of interest rates hiking. And she she finds a way to continue to to gain market share through all that. And it, it just feels like whatever is is, is going to show up, Deb is just going to use that same grit that she had when she was younger and she's going to apply it to solving this problem. And it was just inspiring to hear you know, somebody who's willing to take on something that is is difficult and it's frustrating. And in some cases, it's boring. And she's willing to go and figure it out and then make things better. And she's willing to do it over and over again. It doesn't matter what sort of headwinds hit her. She's going to do it. And I think that was really fun for me to hear. So, Todd, you, you had a little bit of, of life at the beginning where things didn't start out hot for you either. So, yeah. Um, so definitely not uh, Deb's kind of story, but, you know, I think uh, I've shared this before, but, you know, it took me seven years to get a four-year degree and there was probably a decade in there where uh, things just weren't easy for me. Um, so I didn't have a lot of money. I went to college when I had uh, money. And so there were semesters that I didn't. There were semesters I went part-time. Um, I did things like work at UPS nights. So I get to work at 11 o'clock and get off at six, go to class at eight. I was not a good lab partner. Um, and so by the afternoons, I was like just zonked out. Uh, never mind doing my work. Um, so I wasn't a great student. Um, but, you know, I think as uh, that progressed, meaning like I went from manual labor to somebody paying me to like be in a lab uh, to like finally graduating and then doing some startups, like I just had that same tenacity where it's like I knew how hard I had to work just to make ends meet. And so working on something singular, like a startup or like when I started to concur, I was not afraid of working super hard. This was like unbelievably easy to me in comparison to where I had been. And so it just made the bar so much easier to like, I'll outwork anybody. Um, if there's two paths that are, you know, that could happen in this decision, I'll prepare for both of them because like, you know, that's just what I'm going to do. And so I think that's carried on in my entire life. Um, and I think it's, it's been a good part. I don't want my kids to go through that same level of struggle, but on the flip side, <laughs> there is something to that grit and saying it's a skill that has helped me get professionally where I am. Yeah. My, my quick story on that too, is when I was rebooting or when I was early in my career, when I was first starting, I was actually in school full-time and my job was to reboot servers. Uh, I got a job doing that. I was in a data center and I had the same attitude. Like I am, I am going to do something different because I'm not going to spend my life doing this. So I, I went to school full-time I launched my first startup while I was going to school, and it was 100-hour weeks plus. And what I learned there is that you, you're capable of more than you think you are. I had no choice. I had to earn my way through school, and I, I wanted to, to do something you know, besides reboot servers. And it put in me this willingness to say, hey, at certain points, you can't do this you know, your whole life. But at certain points, you just, have to, you just have to bust through walls. And that's what we did back then. So I learned more from that uh, than I think I have when it, when it's been easy. And I think that's, you hear that a lot from entrepreneurs. That's when they learn the most. So, uh, speaking of that, we had a, a guest who talked about some hard things. So talk about that, Todd. Yeah. So number four was just learning how to do hard things. I think it builds on grit. Um, I think grit is maybe the, the tenacity to keep going, uh, heart, learning hard to do hard things, I think is a life skill. I mean, we talk about it from an entrepreneur standpoint, uh, but uh, Bridget Blody in episode 12 um, from for Mero was just like a great one from that perspective. Um, I think she, yeah. she had a great origin story, which was cool, but then she basically 
Um, she didn't have a technical background. She didn't have a sales background. She started to kind of, you know, find her way as a product person. Um, and I think, you know, she knew at the surface level that starting a, a, a company would be hard, but I don't think she had any idea like how hard and how many challenges and what you're going to go do. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I think is under, or one of the things that was kind of under um, maybe appreciated in her story was she was a college athlete. She was a runner. And I do think that the, like the, the ability to like go after PRs and training and all that stuff, she just, mm -hmm. she knew it and she would continue to kind of push and go for it. Um, and so it was just kind of interesting to um, listen to her and see how that goes. Her comment to me was like, they always got to this like threshold where it's like, I've done some hard things and now things are going. And then like, there's another th set of things that are even harder. And she's like, I didn't think I could do it, but she's like, I kept on getting challenged and like figuring out, okay, this is how it's going to be. And then she reached this plateau that said, you know what? I'm just going to have to do hard things all the time. And she's like, it's not going to get easier. It's only going to get harder. And I think this embracement of that's how it's going to be. And I can do way more than I ever thought I could. And there's an empowerment and a, and a, a self-belief in that that she had with her team that I just was found inspiring. Yeah. And, and I found that to be true in my entrepreneurial journey as well. When I started out, I was a tech guy, and I thought the hardest problems to solve were technology problems, and they were hard. It's always hard to build something that's never been built before. But this kind of goes back to the, some of the, the skills that you have to have as an entrepreneur. I didn't realize how hard go-to-market was going to be. I totally underestimated that. And I thought that once you figured out go-to-market, then it was, it was easy. But we have seen that, Todd, time and time again in our startups that are both in our program and ones that are graduating. You have to reinvent yourself over and over and over and over. And if you stop, you should be worried because what's going to happen is somebody else is going to continue and you're going to get beat. So that idea that doing hard things is a part of, of the lifestyle of an effective leader, an effective entrepreneur, I think has become a cornerstone. And, and those of us who sort of just say, hey, this is part of life and we're going to learn to, uh, to, to live in that space in a way that's healthy, but also in a way that's always challenging ourselves is, is key to us continuing to get better. And we always want to be getting better. No matter where we're at, we want to keep getting better. And that's where you see startups really succeed is when they just keep doing that over and over and over. That becomes their moat, is their ability to, to continue to evolve. And, and the entrepreneurs themselves have to, have to embody that. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of this becomes the new normal. It's not like, woe is me. I've got hard things to go do and I'm not whining yep. and, and commiserating about that. Um, I'm curious, like, uh, do you think that over time, I guess in my career, I would say I was uh, early on, I was a problem solver. And I think as I've gotten older, I've been trying to become more of a problem avoider. Um, right. And so there's still problems that are going to come. But over time, you become you get to understanding how to position yourself so you have less problems to go deal with. I mean, do you think that's true? Or like, I know that for me that that's like almost a goal where it's like saying, I want to make smarter decisions. So I minimize the number of those that I have to really go tackle. Yeah. And I think you see entrepreneurs who are effective doing that, uh, that you, you don't need to go do everything that's hard for the sake of doing hard things. You need, you need to minimize the number of hard things you're going to do because it takes a lot of mental energy to focus on solving a hard problem. It's usually multiple layers. You know, it's, it's complex. That's why it's, it's hard, right? And so the more things that you can do, you can use resources around you, you can use knowledge around you, you can use experience to avoid stepping in holes, the better off you are. And that's really where Wildfire uh, has, has, has started is because so many entrepreneurs were falling into the same holes that were really hard and really frustrating and took a lot of time that it was slowing them down and it was taking all their energy and they weren't getting to market. So I don't think there's any uh, honor in trying to, to hit every problem and solve every problem. The more problems you can avoid, the more time you can spend on solving the hardest problems and the most critical problems. So I totally agree with that. 
Yeah. So yeah. That, that leads us to the next one, which is focus. Yeah. So focus is a superpower is number five. Um, and uh, I think this was, I think a good example of this was Matt Polson from MicroWatch. Um, you know, he talked a lot about how, you know, he uh, had all these side projects and, you know, he would do a little bit of work here and he'd do a little bit of work there. And, you know, some of them were growing quickly. Some of them had great potential. Some of them were in larger TAMs, you know, total addressable market. Um, and then there was this one that was MarketWatch and it, it started off kind of slow. Um, but then the more work he put into it, the better. And he really got to the point where he just kind of said, you know what, maybe I should get rid of these other three projects and just double down on this one. Um, and I think he went from thinking of it as a risk mitigation strategy, where it's like, I got kind of eggs in all these baskets. And depending on how the market changes, I've got something that's working for me all the time to look, this one's actually going to work and I'm going to build a business on it. And to his credit, when he decided to work on that and basically put all of his attention on it, he sold off to his partners. He, you know, shuttered a couple of other businesses and focused on this. Now he's got a $30 million business with 15 employees. That's the envy for a margin of lots and lots of people. Yeah. And what, what I admire about what he did, and I think the learning from that is that he, 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 he took time to really look at things with a critical lens and not just continue because he was doing it. And he said, I'm willing to actually do, quit doing something that may be working so that I can do something even better that is working even better. And I think there's a balance of, 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 I think he has some good gut instincts on that, but there's also some real hard data he was looking at of what was succeeding. And when he, when he talks about it, he talks about how there was just clear evidence that, that you know, market beat was really starting to get traction. And he made some, some tough decisions to do that. I actually had to do that a, a number of years ago when we were selling horizontal CRM software. And that was a time where CRM was the big thing and Salesforce was just really starting to take off. And everybody was selling CRM software. And what we realized is that you could sell CRM software and build CRM software for everyone, but you were going to suffer from, you know, difficult uh, customer attrition numbers and high sales and marketing costs. And really the play was in niches. So to take a CRM app and make it highly valuable, highly sticky for a niche was a lot better of a strategy than trying to be everything and every, to everyone. And a lot of people didn't want to do that because they were worried that they were going to leave chips on the table. They're going to leave deals on the table because they were going to turn down business uh, in, in an industry they just didn't know anything about. But as a result of that uh, decision to go niche, you can build something defensible, you can build something that's high value, and you can really build a moat. Whereas if you're trying to do everything for everyone, you just become vanilla and, and you're really easy to, to, it's really easy to lose in that environment. Um, I think that's true in, in a lot of things. I think of, of David George, who's, who's one of our, um, our startups. Todd, do you want to talk a little bit about David? I think that's a good example of, of niches. Yeah. So I think in general, we like niches from a wildfire perspective uh, because there's usually some white space and maybe they're an area that's not a big enough opportunity for large corporations to go after. Um, and I think that's indicative of one of our portfolio companies called AgSense uh, that David George runs. And so AgSense is really, uh, I mean, the, the, I would say the elevator pitch is it's kind of agricultural quants. Um, they're really looking at like the market and using statistics and analytics to really look at uh, maybe market arbitrage or uh, directional understanding of of cattle in, in this specific case. Uh, David and I, David George and I went to college together, um, and so David, freaking smart dude, um, and he, he finished up school of mines, and then he went to um, Stanford and got a petroleum engineering degree. And I've been working with David on and off again, uh, just personally for like the last four years on some of this work. And his ability to focus is just unbelievable. Um, and so I know personally that it's difficult for me. 
Yeah, it is insane. And so like, I love kind of the diversity and all this other stuff. And I sometimes have problems of just like saying, okay, I'm going to go deep and focus on this. And, you know, David literally will uh, focus on a problem and like 36 hours later, come back on the other side. And, you know, he's, he's managed everything else in his life and basically just focused on this. And so even when you want him to focus on other things uh, that may be better for him, he is going to get to the bottom of this. And so I will get a text message at four o'clock in the morning saying, Eureka, I figured something out. Um, and I can't wait to talk to you as soon as you get up. Um, and so uh, I think that is a skill that is getting that is harder and harder in our society. I don't know if it's social media. I don't you know, just the diversity of stuff, but the ability to focus a long time on one topic uh, to make a lot of progress, I do really think is a superpower. Yeah, I think it goes back to that deep understanding, which we're going to talk about in a, in a, in a little while, of understanding a topic or a thing at a, at a very granular level allows you to add value in a way that you just can't otherwise. And that's what, that's what Matt did as he, as he understood the market that he was serving at a very granular level. It's the same thing that David George is doing, understanding ag at a very granular level. He's able to unlock value in ways that you never could unless you have the focus to understand the whole issue. And I think you can add so much more value when you take the time to understand something deeply versus trying to understand something at a cursory level and hope you can add value. Yep, I think that's right. So the next one I have on the list is number six, and it's coachability. Um, uh, Jaron Tiefenthaler from Sign Up Sports is the example that we use from episode four. Uh, Jared was our first uh, entrepreneur in Wildfire, um, and he, uh, he, Mike, and I learned a lot of things along the way. But I think one of the reasons why we picked Jared was his ability just to want to learn and get better. Um, I first met Jared through another startup that he did here in the Hills, and I didn't know if that one was going to work or not. But I just felt like he was a good human being that wanted to learn, wanted to get better. And it was somebody that we really wanted in our ecosystem. Um, and, you know, he talks about it even in his comments um, in his uh, in his episode, just about being open minded, realizing that you don't know everything, being humble, uh, being self-aware of the things you do well and what you don't. Um, but, you know, it takes two to tango on this, Mike. I mean, I think like you have to build kind of a, a, a relationship and a style um, and everybody's a little bit different from a coachability standpoint. And I know you had some, you know, one-on-one -on -one interactions with them. And basically you guys had to find that together um, and find something that worked. Yeah. Cause coaching is definitely a two-way street. I think back to when uh, the early part of wildfire, when uh, you know, he had gone through, he had interviewed some customers had figured out what he wanted to go build, but it was at a high level. And, and Jared is absolutely an entrepreneur's entrepreneur, a visionary. And we needed to get really specific and really detailed about what the MVP was going to was going to build. And, and he was he was he was doing a lot of things right at the high level. But on a detailed level, things were just not quite clear. And I needed him to get it clear. And, and he wasn't getting there. So finally, I said, I'm going to just grade the stuff you're delivering from workflows and, and wireframes from A to F. And if, and if I give you an F, you're failing. And he basically said, screw you. I'm not your kid. I'm not taking you know middle school classes better. Yeah. And uh, I think he hung up on me. And uh, fortunately, we were able to reconnect later in the day. And, uh, and, and there's some things that we both needed to change. Jared definitely needed to do better at, at getting detailed. And, and to his credit, he did that. He went and did the hard work. And, uh, and I had to change a little bit of how I was communicating with him to, to not disrespect him. I wasn't intending to do that. Obviously, I was. And, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I think he was very coachable. I hope I was coachable too in uh, changing my approach a little bit so that we could we could bridge the gap. But I just appreciate that he's willing to go to those places. And, and I think coachability is not, not something that uh, is easy. Uh, sometimes it gets crunchy. Um, there's some times where you've coached me and it's been crunchy. But at the end of the day, he learned, I learned. And I think he got better. 
Uh, and, and you see that with what's happening now as he's gone to market. Um, that work mm-hmm. has paid off. I think those conversations were worth it. Yeah. And I guess one of the things I would say is it's not a one size fits all. Um, I think you insinuated that, but I want to make sure that we're, I mean, I think if you look at all the different characters that we deal with um, through kind of these coaching sessions, you kind of have to meet the entrepreneur where they're at and then figure out a way to communicate and basically um, help them along the, that journey. Um, I think you're an entrepreneur because you have a vision and um, and sometimes it can be myopic, but I think the good ones know a good idea when they hear it. And they're building, and they're willing to say, "Is this accretive to what I'm trying to get done? And does it make me a better entrepreneur over time?" Um, if you have all the answers, you're probably not going to be a great entrepreneur. And I think it's a really hard balance because you want to change the world, and so you have to say no to some people that don't believe in you. But you also have to listen and go, "I need these ideas that are going to help me and be accretive to like getting to my vision and figure that out." Not not an easy balance. Yeah, and, and I think the best ideas have to win. It doesn't matter who comes up with them, right? It doesn't matter if you come up with the best idea or I do or Jared does. At the end of the day, the best ideas need to win. And that's where you, you, an entrepreneur needs to be coachable, but they also don't, you don't want them to be a pushover. They, they need right. to be willing to defend the right idea. And, and even when, you know, because sometimes people around them are going to get it wrong and they need to have enough confidence to be able to battle for the right ideas but also enough humility that when they see a good idea that wasn't theirs to incorporate it. And I think that's key um, to be coachable, but also to be willing to battle for the right idea to win. Yeah, I think it's, that's good. Okay. So the next one we have is uh, number seven. And so number seven is communication skills. And so I think this one's kind of somewhat tangential to uh, kind of our origin story that we kind of talked about. But I think, you know, I, I highlighted Eric Broughton from okay to charge. Um, uh, it was episode seven. Um, you know, Eric is kind of a unique individual, right? He's another engineer um, and he, he's articulate. Um, I think he's done really well at communicating visions um, from a number of startups. And, you know, he had three exits um, and he's working on his fourth. Um, and so that's impressive in itself. So and like leading teams to finding investors to like actually selling your your company, like there's a lot of communication to doing that. Um, and I think it starts with, you know, a good origin story like where we talked about. It's about having a vision for a product and like how you're going to transform an industry, um, the ability to like go and convince investors that this is something that's credible, uh, not just based on your track record, but based on kind of the milestones and the execution. It, it can't be this like wild vision about what you have. It's got to be something that's realistic, but then chopped up into some execution pieces of it. And then how do you inspire the people internally to your company, right? I mean, now you've just gotten the investment money and you've told everybody what you're going to go do. And hopefully you haven't signed them up for some crazy stuff. Then you're inspiring the people internally to go do it. Um, I think those skills are like super innate and like you, and I think it's one of these ones where all of our, all the people that we interviewed, all of our entrepreneurs, this is one that is a continuous in motion. You're you're going to get, you're going to start it. You may have some uh, natural inclination for it, but man, if you want to survive and grow, you got to get better at it. Yeah. I think that that was a huge learning curve for me early on in my career. And I think it's taken the longest to do well. And I'm still working on it. I think every entrepreneur we're talking to, and I think even Todd and I are, are constantly trying to get better at this. And one of the challenges, and you kind of hit on it earlier, I just wanted to, to talk a little bit more about this in detail, is that you can't use the same message repeatedly the same way for everyone or you lose people. So I, an example is when I first started that first uh, idea where we're going to do online backup, when I was selling the idea to Michael Moser in his parents' basement and trying to figure out how to help, the, we were talking about tech and how to do it and how to make it seamless which is a totally different talk track than I use for the end customer. 
And that, I thought I had it sorted out, right? I had the, the sales pitch for the customer figured out. They could simplify their backups. Michael wanted to work on it. But then a whole new level of, of challenge happens when, you're, when, you, when you need to raise investment. And now you're talking to people who have never even seen what an online backup looks like, don't even know why that's even important, and are not technical and are not used to investing in technology. And at that time, we didn't have networks of investors that were investing in tech. It was too new. And so I had to learn a whole new set of skills of how do I communicate in terms of metrics and growth plans and market size and TAM, all those things. That was a whole new set of vocabulary. It was the same idea, but it, I, it, you, you think as an entrepreneur, I can sort of rinse, lather, repeat to these groups of people. And the reality of it is you have to completely reinvent how you communicate in the tone that you use and the words that you use so that your audience understands. Because ultimately, communication is not for the person delivering the message. It's for the person receiving the message. And that was a huge sort of like nugget for me once I figured that out. And I see entrepreneurs go through that. And it's a hard thing to take your message and tailor it so that the person who you're you're uh, speaking to understands what you mean. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, this goes back to like vocabulary and vernacular. Um, and so I, I'll give just one example. I, I I made like maybe the more dramatic switch at Concur where I started off in engineering and development and I ended up in sales. And so it, you can't use the same terminology to describe something even sales related with the same vernacular and vocabulary that you have in development. It needs a whole new set of words. And if you do, people realize and call you out pretty quickly, like, you are not one of us. You do not understand these things. And so it was uh, an eye-opener to me that said, okay, fine. Like, if you're going to do this, the concepts from a process perspective may be very similar, but how they talk about it. And then I would even abstract that a step further. We talked to a lot of people. We sold uh, financial software. And so if you didn't talk finance to the end user, um, then that was another thing. And so these are, uh, you know, CFO, controller, accountant types. And so they have their whole understanding of, of GL and the college work that they have done to like build that vocabulary. And if you didn't bridge that gap, it didn't work. You didn't have credibility with them. Um, and so I, I think this is one where it's like, it's super hard. And I think, but you have to be conscious of it because if you, if you think you've got it figured out, it, it, you're going to stub your toe. Yeah, and I, I think we we continually are refining this. I even think of conversations we've had in the past few months about changing messaging so that it resonates because it, this is a journey and it's a commitment to learning. It's also a commitment to understanding and respecting your audience. And every time you get a new audience that you haven't spoken to before, you have to go relearn this. And I think people who are not committed to that stumble because if you think you've got it and then you just start plowing down the path without validating it, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble and and we both have. And, and we yeah. see entrepreneurs do that a lot. So I think this is one that, it's just whenever we see entrepreneurs who are committed to this and they have a breakthrough, we just you just want to give them a high five because yep. it's just it's so it's so fun to see when when, when an audience connects to a, to a message. Yeah, that's good. All right, moving on. So number eight is process over outcome. Um, I picked uh, Eric Martz from Broodstack um, as an example of this uh, out of episode eight. Um, I think it's interesting how you know all entrepreneurs have a reason to get into entrepreneurship. Um, and some of them are, you know, they, they, they see a problem and they want to fix it. There's people that want to do it for money. Um, they want, you know, the financial outcome of it. Um, some people don't like working for other people. There's a wide range of stuff, but almost all of them that we talk to are not based on just the outcome. I'm not here just to sell my company. Um, and I think Eric has kind of a, a march towards, uh, a set of experiences that basically was a creed of every time he went. And he got better at the process and the outcome got better, but he wasn't focused on the outcome. He was focused on the process and getting it better. And so I think, it, I think that's interesting. And I think 
we find uh, people that are wired that way are super good entrepreneurs um, because they just want to get better at the process. The outcome will take care of itself. Um, and and uh, and I, I you know and you do see some people that are just like uh, we've had a couple of candidates to be honest that we didn't accept into our program that basically were super excited thinking I had the best idea in the world and it's just going to be lights out and printing money. I don't want to do the work. And I think you and I passed on them saying like this these are not good candidates for us because we're never going to be able to get them to look at the methodology and say, do the methodology to get to the outcome. If you think that the outcome is where you're going to get, like, it's just going to work. I think you're just like, it, it's just wrong. It's a, it's a, it's, it's the wrong way to think about it. Yeah. And I think, I think to put a, a different kind of lens on that is, is the, 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 I guess the thing we call black boxes. So every entrepreneur comes from a particular area. They know they're really good with engineering or technical, or they're really good with product or they're really great with sales. And, and, and if they think that they can build a business on that one skill set, the problem is the black box is what gets them, the thing they don't understand very well. And if they're not interested in understanding processes and they're only worried about outcomes, they'll throw people at the problem, they'll hire a firm, they'll just outsource it, and they don't understand the building blocks of how to get there, and they aren't willing to do the work. And usually it's the work that's uncomfortable because it's not, it's not, in, their, uh, it's not in their area of, of expertise. So they got to go do something they're not very good at. And they have to try it and have to iterate on it and they have to get better. And that's what Eric was willing to go do. He's willing to just go into this market and figure it out, do all the hard things. And the outcome was great. But it's because he did all the hard things and learned all the things that he didn't know about along the way that he was able to get to those outcomes. So whenever we see an entrepreneur that's not afraid of, of, of growing in an area and they're willing to take black boxes and, and learn how to understand them, that's a big win. And that goes, it'll, that'll take them a long way down the path. Yeah. And I mean, I'd even build on that today. I mean, I think Eric um, getting into our program and helping from a wildfire standpoint brought a bunch of skills, but there's some areas that he didn't know. And so he's just like saying, lean in, like, let me learn, let me figure this out. Let me figure out how to add value. So I'm a more well-rounded entrepreneur or mentor or coach uh, to do it. And so you just love that where people are just running towards those areas to get better at them. Um, And I think your black box analogy is dead on. Yep. I agree. So that brings us to our, our next one, which is that you don't do this stuff by willy-nilly and by gut and by golly. There's some things that you can actually track. So talk to me about metrics, Todd. Yeah. So number nine is uh, know the metrics of your business. Um, and I I, I, um, I I picked David Hanna. Uh, he had a company called Paystubs. Uh, he was episode number two. Um, before I was really doing Wildfire, I was doing some consulting work and I met David Hanna probably I got to know, probably six years ago. And somebody just said, hey, he's got a software as a service company here in the Hills. You should talk to him. He's an interesting dude. Um, and when I sat down with him, I didn't know that he was a, you know, an accountant background or anything like that. Uh, he was a CEO that knew his metrics inside and out. Like I was massively impressed with, I asked him like two questions and he took my two questions and went two levels deeper. Um, and, and so you know, he was, he knew things about, you know, the average, uh, you know, lifetime value of his customer. He knew how much revenue each customer or employee should have. Uh, he knew what his margin should be. He knew what his CAC, his, his, you know, customer acquisition cost was. Um, and he was trying to figure out like, how do I get better at each one of these? But it was the foundation to like measurement of these things, quantify them and then measure them consistently and then try experiments to see if you're getting better at them. And to me, that was like, you're just like, holy crap, here's a small business owner that really understands this stuff well, and then is using them to consistently get better. Um, and he had a successful, you know, 
like buyout of his company. And it was partly because he had just run a very efficient, capital efficient mark business. Um, and basically they were super happy to, to bring it on because a lot of the other acquisitions they have done were just not to the level of maturity that he had in his business. And so I've always been impressed with him. Um, and, and it, and it just continues to this day. Yeah, I think he's a great example of that. And he's, he's, uh, somebody who knew his metrics and he's able to make decisions on them. Uh, I think we've seen this a lot with our startups is that it's sort of like scary to track a metric, right? Because you don't have enough data and you might be wrong. And what happens if you put a number out there and, and it turns out that you were, you were way overshooting it or way undershooting it. There's some embarrassment there, but, but we've both seen that being willing to put a, put a stick out there and say, Hey, this is what I think it's going to be track my metric uh, along that line. And then you can, you have something to measure against. And that's, that's what David was doing. He was measuring against that, that goal to see how can I make the business better? Yeah. And it does. And like you said, it doesn't need to be perfect. It's a stake in the ground. And then basically as you get better data, you basically iterate on it. And so, you know, if you're going to a conference and you're saying, how many leads am I going to get? And you're like, well, it's the second concert or the first conference I've done. I have no idea. Well, tell me, just make us. And, and I know you and I had some of those conversations where I was like, put a guess out there. And you're like, uh, that's super uncomfortable. But if you give a guess, then you're walking around and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to get 15 different you know, business cards. So I get some leads. I better start working on that. Uh, it creates some accountability, even if the metric isn't perfect. Uh, yeah, I think the other thing it does is if something changes, it allows you to react earlier. So uh, back when we were selling CRM into the egg sector, there were some changes that were going on that we didn't know about. And the way we detected it is that our sales cycles, all of a sudden in the middle of our funnel, which is the demo stage, they just started elongating. And we expected that they were going to be 30 days or less. And all of a sudden they were at 45 and, and they were continuing to expand. So we started to ask questions. We actually ended up drilling into the fact that in the ag sector, there was a bunch of changes in the input costs that were putting a bunch of pressure on some of these buyers. And it was changing their whole economic scheme. And so anyway, if we had waited until uh, our, it showed up in our financials, it would have been months. And, and it would have really taken away the ability to react in a way. And so even though it was it was painful and it was frustrating to see the fact that that happened and we were able to to make some changes was huge. And I think you see that in startups, especially as they get down the path and they start to scale. If they don't have those in place and things start to go wrong, it takes a really long time for it to show up in your P&L and your cash burn rate. And, and, it, and it really puts you at a disadvantage because so much time has passed. You put those metrics in now, you can start to see changes in the business before it, it jumps out and kills you. So um, Todd, you've been involved in some businesses that are in that scale stage. Talk to me a little bit about how metrics have, have, have helped been helpful there. Yeah. So Ray has been, um, runs property meld. And I think this year was a year where we put in a lot more, uh, transparency into metrics. I think Ray basically ran a lot of this. And I think the board was asking for more transparency. Uh, David Hanna actually came in as a fractional CFO and started providing more clarity and calculation. And, you know, there's lots of, uh, nuances to how you calculate in this. How do you think about churn? Uh, they had like a 90 day out on their contract. And so do you count that as churn? Uh, the guy who was responsible for churn wasn't counting it because it was a 90 day out. So, and then the sales guys were like, Hey, of course we're counting it. So, you know, like there's a lot of this stuff where I think in general property meld as a whole started to get just way more crisp on what does, what's included in cogs, what's included with CAC. How do you do lifetime value? How do you really think about like net uh, retention? Um, all those types of things now created a 
foundation for us to make better decisions as a company in there. And I would say that that company is well positioned going into next year better than they ever have. And a lot of it is because all of those executives in that company understand those core metrics. And so I think that's super important. And it's a bit of a huge maturity curve and sometimes painful, but I think it's been beneficial to their business as a whole. Yeah. And I think the note there is that it's never it's never too early to start tracking metrics. And it's also never too late to admit that you don't have them all in place and to reassess that. I think the startups that are the best are always looking at things saying, at our current stage, what do we need to track? And how can we be- get better with that data? Because just tracking more metrics isn't yeah. useful. You, you want to track metrics that you can use to make operational decisions. And if you're going to track a metric and ask, what is that going to do? And that's what I think you've done with property build is what are the re- what are the metrics that really change the, the trajectory of this business? And then what can I do to influence those outcomes? And I think that's really the, the key is that you have a metric and then you have a plan once you once you learn something to change the business. Yep, I totally agree. Yep. So this brings us to the last one, number 10. Uh, probably my favorite one uh, out of the entire season. Um, it's failure plus learning is flirting. I didn't even know word, the word flirting was word. a word. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so this is came out of episode 10, uh, Jake Jordan staff from Bushel. Um, and Jake basically talked about this as flirting is a cultural aspect of uh, Bushel. Um, basically, they're saying we will make mistakes, but we will learn from those mistakes. And we're not going to make the same mistakes twice. Um, and we're okay providing transparency on it, but let's do postmortems if it's something that's catastrophic or not catastrophic, but important or impactful, and then figure out how do we operationalize that going forward. Um, I think we see this in in all kind of opportunities that we have. I think both of us personally have gone through a lot of what people would perceive as failures, but I think we all took something from that and made it accretive. Um, I know I've talked about even in my origin story um, when in our first episode, I talked about the first startup I did and I just didn't understand sales and go to market and I made some really bad mistakes. Um, And basically it was the death of the startup. Um, And so I never made that mistake again. Uh, but I, I, I basically failed at that one and then applied some of those learnings onto the next one, to the next one, to the next one. And so I, to me, this is, this is maybe the essence of entrepreneurship is the ability to fail and learn, um, I think is super critical. Yep, I agree. And uh, I think for me, just understand that startups are risky and, and people make mistakes. And so uh, I think it's rather than running away from those and viewing them negatively, I know in the Midwest, we oftentimes view things negatively, uh, uh, failure. I think the truth is, is that uh, we need to look at, instead of through a different lens, that failure is a part of learning and a part of growth. Yeah. And I think, you know, whether it's teaching our kids that there's a Nelson Mandela quote that I just love, um, which says something like, you know, I never lost. I either won or I learned something. Um, and so I do think that's kind of our attitude and going forward. And I think to build on your kind of Midwestern uh, feedback about failure, I think success and failure are not opposite sides of the coin. They're adjacent to each other. Um, I think you can't really have success without taking some swings and failing. Um, I was talking to somebody fairly recently, and they were talking about how they, um, they, were, they were failing in some cases, but they were pushing the envelope a little bit. And if you don't push the envelope a little bit, you're not going to get to success. And so there has to be some of this. So if you're playing it safe all the time, um, you're not probably going to grow and get to the outcomes you want. You have to take some risk on this. And not all ones are going to work. You just want to make sure that the risks that you take are not catastrophic ones. They're ones that you can recover from. Um, and I think that's all part of this learning um, and failure plus learning. 
So I, I love this one. I think it embodies a lot of what we're trying to do. Um, and I love that that Jake and, and the Bushel team have made this part of their culture. I do too. This is a great one to end on because I think it's a part of our, our daily lives here at Wildfire. And we're <laughs> always learning and we're always growing and we're always making things better. Yeah, it's it's been a fun uh, season to put together. I think personally, I've loved uh, spending time with these entrepreneurs. Um, I've grown professionally just trying to do this. I mean, there's a lot of things that I haven't done before. I made some mistakes in this. Um, and so just trying to understand how to get better at the craft that you haven't done before is interesting. And I think the gr just learning things is, is fun. So I think that's been really good. And I think there are some really good nuggets here that we can take away into um, our own professional lives as we go forward. Uh, I think a lot of it applies to entrepreneurship, but I think it applies to a lot of other uh, jobs that you do in your day-to-day -day life. Yep, I agree. Well, that's our season one, Todd. What a fun season. Thank you for hosting it. It's been fun to listen. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It has been fun. And so uh, next year, uh, we're going to start our second season next year, um, and that'll be season two. We have an impressive line of guests that are lined up for it, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, we're going to make some small changes, I think, to the podcast as we go forward, so you'll kind of see that as it kind of rolls out. Uh, but again, take this flirting idea, what worked, what didn't, um, and then how do we iterate on continuously getting it better? Uh, we want to make sure this product is what you know entrepreneurs and other people that are listening uh, find value in, and we've gotten some good feedback that we'll continue to incorporate it. So I'm super excited about it, Mike. It really I appreciate the partnership and Wildfire and, and working with you. Um, I think we've had a great year. The podcast is just a, a piece of of the puzzle there. Um, so I appreciate all of your uh, patience and working with me and and just how far we've come. So it's it's been a it's been a treat, and I'm super excited to see what 24 looks like. Well, yeah, and I feel the same. And I also appreciate your willingness to talk about flirting to go and do a podcast. So you just decided we're going to do a podcast and you jumped in with both feet. And, and here we are a whole season in. And uh, I've learned more than I expected. And I've heard stories that I, I totally took that took me by surprise. And some guests that you brought on here, they had just some really interesting stories. So thanks for putting in the effort. I'm, I'm really excited to see what season two brings because you've got some, uh, you know, too early to, to let let too much out about what season two is going to be but it's going to be it's going to be really fun some of the guests that we have on the list are, are just going to be incredible so uh, i'm looking forward to doing it and, and listening with you okay well good well mike again we're going to close this out i appreciate everybody listening and all the participation that these people have put in and time and effort to help put this podcast together and uh, we'll see you guys in 2024 so thanks again 